This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. And we're live again. Thank you and everyone. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Dojo Live, connecting experts like you. Today we have Kevin Kelly. Kevin Kelly is senior maverick for, you probably heard this magazine, He's been around for decades, for a long time. Uh, it's Wired Magazine. And of course, uh, he co-founded Wired in 1993. So we have Kevin here today, along with my fellow Nearsoftians, Misael Leon in our Hermosillo office, and also Jorge Hernandez here in Mexico City, in our Mexico City office. So um, Today's topic is one of the most, to be honest, it, I've been here and running this show for a couple of years, and to be honest, is one of the most intriguing ones I've ever uh, uh, watched or conceived or heard about, which is understanding the te 12 technological forces that will shape our future. This is about Kevin's book, The Inevitable. Understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. So, Kevin, thank you so much for, for being here with us today. Absolutely, it, it's a pleasure. Yeah, it's really my delight and honor that you've ha had me here. I'm really excited to um, discuss the next 20 years in technology. Cool, yeah, we can we can wait. We can definitely can wait. And like I said, guys, Jorge and Misael, I think you agree with me that this is going to be one of the most exciting topics ever in Dojo Live. All right. So, Kevin, let, let me start uh, by um, simply asking you, tell us a little bit about, just in, uh, tell us about, about Kevin, who's Kevin Kelly and why the Senior Maverick and why the Wired Magazine part, just briefly, and then we can jump into the, uh, the, the, the topic of today. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Thank you for having me. So, in, in brief, um, I started off, as a photographer and eventually wound up writing about the new online world as if it was a new country. And I was very lucky to participate in some of the earliest online forums in the 19, early 1980s. And through um, a new job that I had at a magazine called The Whole Earth Review, um, we created the first public access to the internet. It was called The Well, W-E-L-L, -L, in Sausalito, California. And um, living in this embryonic online world, I gained a lot of experience of what it was going to be like and a huge enthusiasm and optimism about what we could do online. And I started to write uh, about that, and I started to publish articles. And I did a, uh, the first hackers conference, co-organized that in 1985, and the first virtual reality conference in 1989. And then um, started a publication called Signal, which was a little bit like a pre-wired version uh, that was about digital culture. And then I got involved um, in uh, starting Wired in 1992, 93, where we were trying to do the same thing, talking about digital culture uh, and nerds and geeks who were at that time not considered cool. So Wired kind of made geeks cool, made talking about technology a mainstream thing. And um, 
Uh, I was involved in running and editing Wired for uh, the first decade until um, we had to sell, the owners were forced to sell a magazine through a very complicated VC takeover. Um, and at that point, I left to start to write books. So I've been writing about what technology means to us. The consequences of technology um, is really the cultural implications of technology is really what I'm concerned about. And right. uh, this current book, which I finished, uh, I guess, a year ago, um, is trying to lay out the general trends in technology, not the specifics, not predicting what will happen at the product level, but just the general trends in technology um, over the long term, say over the 20 to 30 year horizon. Cool. Absolutely. Uh, I, as far as I'm concerned, I, as a non-engineer, I kind of wonder what I'll be witnessing as a, as a user on the user end. But these guys here, Misael and Jorge, probably they have uh, even a more interesting perspective or on what they, they might be thinking that's going to happen in the next couple of decades. So, Misael and Jorge, uh, let's start with the great questions. Guys, right. Misael, the mic's all yours. Yeah, I'll go first. Kevin, I have to say that when I read your book, I was blue, blown away. That was exactly what I was looking at at that precise moment. But what strikes me the most is the title, actually. You say that these trends, these meta trends are inevitable because they're rooted in the nature of technology rather in the, than in the nature of society. So this kind of means that does technology have some intent? And I know you've been talking about this for a while, so maybe you might yeah. elaborate on that. So. I, the, the, the way I would answer that question was a little bit of a story with saying that, um, you know, the microphone that you're speaking into, your shirt, the lights in the ceiling, <clears throat> the chair, none of those things have any kind of intent or lifelikeness at all. But they're actually part of a very large system, the technological system, which I call the technium. So they're all interrelated. So we need... Um, a factory to make a computer and we need computers to run a factory we need to make um we need a hammer to make a saw and we need the saw to make the hammer and so they're they're all interrelated and that system of all the technology in our lives and all the ways in which they're codependent on each other that system actually does exhibit system-like lifelike tendencies and it has certain leanings or urges that, that goes in certain directions. Any kind of a system that big will have recurring patterns of, of what it kind of wants to tend toward. So this is a tendency. So th this system of all the technologies in the world tend in certain directions. And we could say in a certain, say you could say light, uh, you could say a plant, like a tree, wants light. It leans to the light. It wants it not in a conscious way, not in an intentional way in the sense of choosing to have light, but is is leaning towards the light because it needs lights because it's biased towards delight. And then we're I'm saying the same thing about technology is that it's yeah. not like a deliberate conscious intention, it's that it's biased to go in certain directions by the very nature of the technology itself. So yes, it has an intent but it's not a conscious intent. It's an intent that a plant might have to grow towards light. Right. So um, 
and I believe this is an example, and you mentioned this in your book, when you say that the internet is on the same trend as the printing books that happened like, like a few centuries ago. So um, where do you think the internet is gonna be in the next 5,000 5, days maybe? So I, I think there's several different directions. Again, we're not talking about the destiny, where it's gonna end up, what it's gonna become okay. ultimately, but just a general direction. I think the general direction for the internet is one is it is moving away from being an internet that's revolving around information and files, stuff that you can uh, actually you know read or watch, and it's going to move to becoming an internet of experiences, as as VR and these virtual spaces take over. The currency of virtual reality is an experience. It's what you download, it's what you purchase, it's what you share, you share experience. And so these experiences are gonna be the, coming, the currency. And so I think the internet is going to slowly move to revolve around experiences rather than information and files that you download. The second way the internet's gonna change, I think it, um, we might think of it more as um, a conversation that we have with something rather than a place. Mm -hmm. So again, right now we think of it as a place that we go to to get information from. Mm -hmm. And I think it's gonna be much more of, of, a, of an entity, of a, of a back and forth, a dialogue that we have that is an experience and that we have different experiences in. So maybe a close uh, picture of that would be the new um, Echo, Echo Show, the Amazon Echo, the mm -hmm. The um, Siri, uh, I mean the um, uh, Google um, um, Home bot, where you have a conversation. So these are conversational interfaces where you're right. talking to it, you're asking it questions, it's showing you things. So it has a screen. The new one has a screen, and you are actually having a conversation with this always-on thing. And so you're not really going somewhere. It's there. It doesn't move. It's always there. Right. So you don't have a sense of, of going to places. You have a sense of an entity that has a presence that you're conversing with. And then you also be having experiences when you put on the glasses and see something, you'll have an experience. And so I think the internet will become much more like an entity rather than like a place. Right. And, yeah, okay. Uh, I actually want to touch uh, upon what you you just said with uh, Google Home and uh, the Echo. And the second force you identify is Cognify. And as you say, it's the internet becoming more of an entity we can actually have an actual discussion with. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded very much of what Negropont said uh, that, that his, uh, his computer didn't know that he was there, but uh, his toaster did, for example. And uh, that's going to change. As you say, it's not just going to be a static thing, but something we actually have a relationship with. Uh, how do you see that affecting us, affecting society, affecting the way we interact with each other? Yeah, so um, I think it must have some effect if we are increasingly spending more time interacting with this other presence, not just a machine, but this entity, we having a relationship, how will that affect our relationship with other humans? I think for 
I think it would be good and bad. I think there will be some aspects of it that will make it more challenging because sometimes people might behave worse than the AI does. The AI may, 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 may actually have a better personality, a more attractive personality, and we would rather deal with them because they're attractive rather than with you know, somebody that we have, a coworker that we don't like. So I think there will be some, some challenges in um, having to relate to people who may not be as engineered as the, um, or subservient or serving as say an AI might be in our home. But at the same time, I think those, these relationships also have the potential to make us better at relationships. They, they could also be a way for us to learn in a kind of a non-judgmental way how to be uh, how to relate better to to, to people. So we, we have has the potential both to cause new problems and to help us become better people ourselves as we get instructed from this entity in terms of how to relate better. In, in, in a non-judgmental way. And I think I could see both of them having an impact on, on us. Um, one of the on. things I noticed when reading your book, and uh, which is something that Ms. Hill uh, touched a, a little bit on, is that the 12 forces, at, at least from what I perceived, it's not just that each of them is pushing us in a particular direction, but that each of them seems to feed on each other. Right. Uh, flowing leads to screening, which leads to accessing, which leads to sharing, which right. of course leads to filtering and, and so right. on and so forth. And uh, it seems like very much a system that has like a living system that's alive. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know if you've read uh, Tim Morton, but it seems to me like we can think of the technium as one of Morton's hyper objects, something that transcends our perspective of time and space, uh, something that touches everything that's around us, something that uh, we can't separate ourselves from, and basically another layer of the biosphere, for example. And uh, reading the book, I, of course, I uh, got to that part that says the beginning, which is at the end. And uh, I was particularly struck by <coughs> how you focus on the, on the internet as part of the technique and how it's going to grow. So basically, my, my question here would be, where do you see that evolution taking us as not not just you know the, the human race but but us and that newborn thing we are, we are making uh, where do you see it leading leading us so so let me just try to summarize the part that you read for those who who haven't read it so the the idea is is um uh, the, the huge opportunity that, that is before us is this um, trend towards connecting all the people on this planet together into one network. And so in the way that smartphones are available to all the adults of the planet, so we have many billions, maybe 4 billion people 
who have potentially can be connected together. And then in addition to those 4 billion people, we also have the trillions of machines, so the phones, the laptops, the servers, and all these things are connected together. And the complexity of that whole thing around the planet is very, very large. It, it almost, if you calculate it, which I have, it's, it's far exceeds the complexity of our own brain. So we, so potentially, we've made something more complicated than our own brain already. And unlike our brain, this is doubling in size every couple of years. So it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's more and more transistors, which are almost the equivalent of a neuron. So we, we, we can kind of describe this thing of all the machines connected together on the planet and all the people as well. And then coming will be all the AIs. We can describe that as sort of uh, an emerging organism of some sort that has these qualities, whatever these qualities are, and it has a certain size and specification. So this super organism, this very large planetary organism, is actually a new tool for us. It's a tool in the sense that we have a new ability to collaborate at a scale and speed that was unthinkable before. So the first kinds of things that we've done with that is like the Wikipedia. That's kind of one example of what you could do if you had everybody connected together all the time. You could write an encyclopedia that was written by millions of users um, who could change anything anytime and it would be available to millions of users all the time. That's just the earliest example, but we could begin to actually say, well, what could, we, what could we do if we had a billion people collaborating at the same time, in, in real time? What could we do with that? There's two billion people on Facebook, two billion. Right now, they're collaborating in the most mildest way. They're just sharing gossip. But what if, they, what if we had them do something more, more sophisticated, more powerful? You had even 100 million people working on something together in real time. In the past, the tools, there was no way for that could happen. Now we actually have tools that make that possible. And so we have no idea what's going, what would happen, what would come out of that. Because obviously you could have made some great things, but you could also have something crazy happen. You could also have something, a huge mob. So, so we don't know. And there's probably going to be some bad things happen as well as good ones. But the point is that this is a frontier. This is a huge opportunity to kind of imagine new projects, new products, new services, new cultural inventions that would come out of having millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people connected together in real time and able to collaborate in a way that we couldn't do before. We could make something amazing. And I think if you're, I was an entrepreneur, this is going to be a fantastic opportunity um, to, to make new things. And if, I, if you're a politician, this is going to be a source of new wealth and new problems. If you're an artist, this is an opportunity to do art on an amazing scale, a planetary scale art. So there is so much ahead of us. And, and that is sort of when people think, well, what's after AI? Well, this is after AI. This is, this is the biggest thing after AI, which is the biggest thing since the Industrial Revolution. So this is really big. Mm -hmm.
I, I'd like to address and that we should talk about this uh, controversial topic, which is um, the topic of surveillance. You mentioned in your book that uh, on tracking, we need to make a trade-off between privacy and the personalized experience that you mentioned. And you introduced this new topic of covalence. May you, may you address that? Uh, let's let's uh, find out more about it. Yeah, so um, again, to summarize for the benefit of those who have not read the book, the, the idea is that um, I don't see any counterforce to increasing tracking over time. So um, everything in the technology itself wants to track. The technology wants to track. All the, the ways in which the stuff that we make, cameras, microphones, keyboards, virtual reality, all these things are collecting data about our behavior. And more and more of our daily lives will be tracked in some capacity. People are not even aware of how much of our lives are already tracked, even without us knowing it. More will be tracking. We are tracking ourselves with quantified self, you know, Fitbits. Our friends are tracking us when they take a picture of us and they tag us in the photograph. Companies are tracking us and governments are tracking us, city governments, state governments, national governments. And so that will continue. I don't see any way to stop that. There's some hope among privacy advocates that we can stop this tracking, just, just opt out, choose it to stop, uh, make a law to prevent it from happening. And I don't think that's going to work. It's like trying to stop copying on the internet, it doesn't work. You, it wants to copy, you have to kind of work with the copies. So this is tracking not gonna stop, so we have to work with the tracking. So how do we, so the question in my mind is how do we turn the mm -hmm. tracking which is inevitable into something which is comfortable or, or beneficial to us? And so while I think the tracking is inevitable, I don't think what we do with it is. I have a proposal, I don't think it's inevitable, but I think it's one way that we could make tracking a little bit more civilized, and that is what I call covalence, meaning that we want to be able to track those who track us. We want to have two ways. If, if the police are filming us, we should be filming the police. Right. And of course, we should have access to what the police film. They should have access to what we film. And so there is, there is a, a mutual symmetry to um, the, the, the surveillance, the, the monitoring. So when Google or somebody monitors us, there should be certain things where, one, I should be able to monitor what you're monitoring. I should be able to monitor you in some ways. I should have access to that information. I should be able to correct it if it's wrong. I should be able to, you should be, I, you should be accountable to where it goes afterwards. I should have some control over that. And most importantly, I should get direct benefits from it. Now, in, in some cases, some of those things are, are working. One of the reasons why we allow Google or Amazon to track us is like in the case of Amazon, they're tracking everything that we purchase, even what we look at, for how long we look at before we purchase it. But they're giving us recommendations about what to buy, and we find that's a good exchange. Okay, that's all right. They give us a really good benefit for that. So 
it's not completely symmetrical because there's more about it than we would like to know, but it's a good start. Mm -hmm. And so um, if we can have uh, covalence, I think we will find the, the issues more comfortable. And I think we also change our definition of what we mean by privacy because privacy is a very loaded word that doesn't really have a very good definition and it probably means 10 different things in 10 different situations so we will might also learn to have more subtle uh, vocabulary for for these terms yeah and we are giving away our privacy ourselves no one is forcing us right now we are feeding the Facebook and the Google and the Twitter with our ideas and our private we, right we we to to you know the Google the Amazon recommendation is personalized because I'm going to be transparent about those particular things to Amazon so they can make it personalized. Amazon doesn't know everything about me, mm -hmm. but the stuff that I choose to reveal to them, they're going to give me benefit back. So, so it's an exchange where I am going to be transparent in order to get some benefit. Mm -hmm. And so um, that, and so that is in one particular facet. So the rest of my life may not, be worthwhile to them. So I think we are going to um, continue to see that. Um, can, personalization is one of the ways in which we are eager to um, become transparent because we get direct benefit for that. Right. Uh, one of the things that also struck me, which actually touches upon one of my interests in sitting here, is the way you talked about for mixing and inter interacting and about the, the role of PR as a new medium. And uh, one of the things I was struck by is how there's a very large possibility that the virtual will stop literally being just a virtual and will be just another layer that exists atop what the, we usually consider, you know, the, the physical world. How do you see those new interfaces, which is basically is whether there would be a new interface to this uh, to this new being that's that's being born to this new uh, internet plus mm -hmm. humanity. How do you see those affecting? Say, are, are there are daily lives? How uh, how are things going to change? How how are things going to be different for my kid? And they were for me once she has that layer on top access to that layer on top of the world what does it say for education what does it say for for healthcare for example those 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 two things are i would love to know, to hear from you what your perspective on that is so um i i um there's two kinds of virtual reality right now there's the kind you wear a full goggle that blocks out the rest of the world and that we call that virtual reality and that's going to give you a sense of um, immersion into another world then there's um, a kind called mixed reality or augmented reality MR or AR and there's you wear you wear clear glasses and you see the real world or the real room that you're in but you have virtual um, uh, virtual people or virtual objects in that real world and um, that second one the MR or AR is much more difficult to do technically technically it's a 
much bigger challenge to project that virtual stuff into the real world. But um, if you can do that, you can do both because you can just kind of paint the glasses black and you have basically the, the, the VR. Um, companies like Ma uh, Magic Leap and Microsoft are working on the second one so we have glasses. And that's um, people, and I agree with them, I, I think that the, the second one, the, the, even though it's technically more difficult, the one with the clear glasses that you are mixing reality and uh, virtual together is much more likely to be a consumer uh, widely adopted by the consumers first because it's just it's more com comfortable it's 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 a easier transition um, and the role of that in education is really large because one of the things that the VR both the mixed kind and the virtual kind one of the things it gives people is the opportunity to use their whole bodies to, so, so that you can interact not just with your fingertips and not just with your voice, but with your voice, fingertips, your whole body, your micro expressions on your face. Everything is being captured, and that allows a much more kinetic involvement. And so, there are many people in the world, and I'm one of them, who learn by using their hands or who think very visually. And um, for us, being able to interact in a physical way with something um, is a much deeper kind of learning because it's happening in a different part of your brain than where it is the part of your brain that reads on a screen. Mm -hmm. And so the potential for education is really huge because there's a large swath of, of people who learn better either audibly, visually, kinetically, rather than just by reading books. And so um, I think this is going to, as, as, as this becomes much more of, a, of an educational platform and makes its way into education, we know already from trials that people, um, you know, if, if you have a heart, you're learning medicine, you, if you can take the heart apart with your hands and see it pump and, and dissect it and move it around and rearrange it and enlarge it and go inside of it, that that actually is a much stronger way, a much more powerful way to teach about the heart, say, than trying to read about it. So, um, and then if people do want to read, you can have a virtual book and you can read on the book for those who do want to read. So you have both. So I think its potential for education is huge. It's huge in terms of, of um its impact, the, the way it can reach, the way it can help people who don't learn well in traditional methods, and it can teach whole new things that we wouldn't even have attempted before. Complexities or even physical things like welding can all be done uh, by following puppets and shadows. So it's, it's, it's very, 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 very powerful. Um, as an education, and of course, it can all be personalized, and that's, you know, if you're willing to surrender some transparency, um, you know, you, you can, it can be personalized with AI to teach you best for the way that you learn. Oh, Carlos, I think you're muted. <laughs> I apologize for that. Okay, yeah, I just wanted to step in for a couple of seconds to remind the audience that if you have any questions for Kevin, you can send them at uh, on Twitter, and uh, it's right here. Where is it? Right here, at Dojo Live. Just send it over 
on Twitter at Dojo Live questions for Kelly. We'll read them back here, and so he can respond live. With that being said, Misael, uh, um, I think I understand you have a one more about great question, and then we're going to be pausing to ask Kevin to talk to us before I know he has a hard stop to talk to us about the inevitable and the book itself, and then uh, so Mike's yeah. all yours, Misael. Yeah, I was. I was just wondering, by the end of your book, you talk about the power of the collective. And I found that really compelling to the company I'm, wor I'm working for right now, which is Nearsaw. Right now, here we are a flat organization, meaning that there are no bosses around. So any, any kind of difficult problem is solved through collective intelligence. We call them leadership teams. But it was really hard for me to grasp the idea of why questioning is a trend of technology. It's, seems more related to people, and, and yet you give it like a big, um, big yeah. part, big part of your book. So, tell us more about it. Yeah. So, so, so I, one of the chapters in the book discusses this idea that there's a trend to questioning, and and questioning may not be the best English title for it. What the trend is towards is um, opening up possibilities and choices which inherently increases the uncertainty of wherever it is of what we know so it increases so so ignorance and questions actually increase faster than the answers and that's nothing to do with again with humans that's just the nature of knowledge um, okay. and it also moves us away from um, certainty because we have more and more and more choices and a limited amount of time to evaluate them, which means that we inherently are confronting um, things that we don't know about all the time. All right, so so the amount of knowledge grows beyond what we're capable of. And so unless we have machines, we cannot possibly know everything or even have an opinion about it. So there is just a, a mechanical expansion of uncertainty mm -hmm. that then drives the value of questions because questions um, are the way that we can navigate through that uncertainty. We can't navigate with answers because mm -hmm. answers are limited. There's more questions than answers. Right. So um, what we're doing is, is um, answers become a commodity that's served up by machines, but the, the good news is that as there is a bias towards the value of using the uncertainty as a, as a, as a positive force, um, humans are actually very good at that. We're actually pretty good at investigating, exploring, questioning, trying things, um, experimenting. All these things are very inefficient. They're wastes of time in, in, compared to what robots and uh, uh, AIs do. They're very, very efficient. And so our currently competitive advantage, so to speak, in humans is, is these things which are very inefficient, which are explorations, which are experience-based, which dwell on the uncertainty and which are about open-ended investigations. That they, they play into our strengths. So. Um, so, the, so the technology is just creating so many opportunities and options um, that 
really the only way we have to navigate through it is to rely on our uncertainty about things. We can't be experts about it. We no longer can be experts about it. We actually have to, um, we actually have to kind of ask our way through. Mm -hmm. okay, um, okay, thank you. Thank you, Misael, and thank you, yeah. Kevin. All right, I have a question of my own, but I, sure. I'd like to ask Jorge if he has any other questions for Kevin. No, no other questions. It has been a true pleasure. Uh, sure. yeah. Yes, okay. Well, Kevin, I have one more thing that I'd like to, to um, comment. I don't know. Well, it's not exactly a question. It's just an observation or a comment. It is said that uh, about your book, about the inevitable, it is said that uh, it offers insights on into what might happen or what will happen uh, when intelligence flows as easily into objects as electricity. And that that concept alone is kind of at least for the for the non-technical person that, such as myself, it's kind of scary in a way. But uh, so, um, and it ties into that idea of this grandeur of technology and all the things that all the incredible things that are happening. But at the same time, I wonder: Are we ready for this? I mean, emotionally, mm -hmm. uh, as humans, uh, what's mm -hmm. so? Do you see that there is a challenge, or is there, there is a something to overcome? So are, are we growing te technology-wise more rapidly than we're growing as emotionally as humans? And yeah. where is the convergence in a, in, a, in a balanced way for this in the next 20 years? What needs to happen in order for this to happen harmoniously or in a balanced way? What is your take on this, if I may ask? So um, you're right. I, I, I think if some of the things that we're describing at, that will be here in 20 or 30 years would happen overnight it would be very scary but they're not going to happen overnight they will happen you know year by year day by day and i i think humans are a little bit more malleable than we think i certainly people there will certainly be people who are afraid or don't want to become involved or who find it very scary but at the same time i'm often heartened by um how much we accept right now uh, and having lived through some previous times when when people were very very sure uh, I mean I, I remember at, at the, the period in the 80s when there was uh, when, when writers real writers right people who wrote books declared that they would never um, use a word processor <laughs> that word processing would destroy their writing they were very sure about that. They were. It was very. They were frightened of it, and I, I don't think there's a writer today who is not using a machine of some sort to, to write, at least at some, you know, at least in the in the to be edited. So it's, um, uh, so so people change their attitudes about these pretty quickly, once they have confronted. Once once they see it. Once they see it in an operation. Once they see it. Um, being used once they use it themselves. And so, um, yes, if AI was as powerful as it is and will be in 30 years, was to happen tomorrow, it would be very scary. But I think what happens is that we're going to get, we're going to try the Amazon, we're going to, we're, we're going to have the Google at home, we're going to have the self-driving car little by little, and we will train ourselves 
to 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 work with it. So um, I think for the majority of people, um, this will be a a incremental path. Yes, there will be people who will be upset and who won't go along and who will reject it, um, and whose you know whose lives may be impacted, losing a job or something, who will really resent it. That is going to happen as well. I'm not trying to minimize that, but I'm saying the majority of people, I think, are much more adaptable to new technologies. There's an initial kind of like distaste, uh, you know, I. I they find it hard to believe or to see themselves in that position. But um, most of us today in the amount of technology that we use, our, our younger selves 20 or 30 years ago may have had difficulty believing that we would all be carrying around, that we'd be happy or not even happy, that we would demand to carry around a supercomputer in our pocket. All right? <laughs> Right. That, that, would, uh, that would have, if I had told you that 20 or 30 years ago, that you would demand, you'd be upset if you couldn't carry it around, you would, you would not believe that. It would seem kind of silly. So I think there's a lot more adaptability to us if it comes incrementally. And I think it will come much more incrementally. I don't think that, you know, the self-driving car is not going to appear all of a sudden. You know, it's like the Tesla. They'll have a little bit more every year. There'll be a little bit fewer, a little bit more cars on the road every year. There'll be a gradual incremental increase that gives us time to become comfortable with these new things. And I don't think that they're actually happening too fast for us to absorb. I, I, I think we can absorb them. Thank you so much, Kevin, for sure. your response. We have five minutes left. If I know you have a hard stop, so I'd like to take advantage of those last five minutes to tell us about your book. Uh, is, um, is it on? Uh, I can, where, where can we find your book? Or is there any, anything that you would like to share with the audience about the book, about the topic, in in as closing words, the final words of wisdom with the audience? You're more than welcome to do so now. It's your it's your slot. Sure. So the book is called The Inevitable. Um, it's on Amazon, and I'm sure there's some other bookstores around the world that carry it. Mm -hmm. There's um, uh, it re released recently in paperback. It's also available as a Kindle and as an Audible book. And interestingly, uh, for reasons I don't understand, um, the paperback is actually cheaper than the Kindle in the U.S. at least. Um, that's that's not my decision or Amazon's decision. That's the publisher's decision. Um, that just shows you they're a little behind the times. But um, uh, people want to hear more. I have a website with my initials, kk.org. Um, we we have a site that reviews cool tools every day, user generated recommendations, and every week um, we publish a little one page newsletter that's free it's it, there are six very very brief recommendations called recommendo recommendo.com and that's things that we are listening to watching eating destinations we go to tips tools um, so that's what I'm up to um, the thing I'm thinking about the most these days is um, what's after AI and what's after AI I think is this superorganism of a global planet, and I think we have to have some kind of global governance 
um, to regulate that. Global governance is an idea that nobody likes. People on my friends on the left don't like it. People on the right don't like it. People in developing countries don't like it. Nobody likes it, but I think it's a good idea. And so um, I'm interested in how it could possibly work. How do you how do you have a democracy for seven billion people? It doesn't seem like that could possibly work. But it, Wikipedia is impossible, and there it works. So it may be something that's not possible in theory. It's only possible in practice. Uh, I don't know, but that's my current interest is um, to imagine a global superorganism that is planetary in scope and has a planetary governance. Um, it's an un unpopular idea, but I think it's a necessary idea, and that's my current uh, interest. I would be curious as to who or who, I mean, who one person or a team of people would be uh, willing to work in that such framework for that governance. So that would be, that's one of the challenges to overcome, I guess, but that's an interesting one nonetheless. Yeah, uh, right, Absolutely. right. It's, the, the question can be sent, who decides, who decides, who decides, who decides, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> yes. somebody has to decide this, but who decides that they decide it and who decides that they, so so it's a, it's a, it's a regressive, infinite regress that there is mm -hmm. no good answer to. Whatever yes. answer you come up with is unsatisfactory or unfair, but that's part of the paradox. Yeah, and with a little bit of luck, we'll be able to witness at least part of it. <laughs> right, right. All right, cool. So, uh, Misael, uh, we have uh, two minutes. Yeah, I was just wondering, Kevin, if this new interest is going to become a book eventually. I, I, I don't know. Um, All right. It's oftentimes that's how books begin is, is, is interest <laughs> that, that I have. Um, my hope is that there are people who have been thinking about this, political scientists or others, um, my expectation generally is that I think people are already thinking about it, but they often are not. Um, but but the one last thing about books is I don't think I'd write a book again because I don't think people are reading books. Uh, more people have seen my TED videos than have ever read my books. And what I should really be making are videos because the culture has moved to videos as the center of thing so we're doing a video right now because that's what people pay attention to yeah and so if i did anything with it i would do a video with it i, I wanted to talk about indexing videos but there might be not enough time to do There's it but it was really, yeah. really yeah. Yeah. thank you so uh Isael and jorge we need to wrap up and uh, the only thing left for me to do is simply uh, thank you again, Kevin, for having agreed to be here with us today. And for those of you, of you who are watching now or will be in the next coming weeks, uh, all the info about Kevin is going to be right there on the Dojo Live website. And he's going to have a patron for his own. And everything is going to be in there. All ways to reach him, about information about the book, and pretty much anything you want to know about Kevin Kelly. So, Kevin, thank you so much for having been with us today. It was a pleasure, an honor, and we look forward to being in touch with you. It was mutual. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank so, you very much. Okay. Thank you, Jorge. See thank you, you Misael. As ever, thank you. Have a great day. And Likewise. keep an eye on Dojo Live next week. Bye-bye. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com.